You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian, a CREC church in Cochrane, Alberta. We invite you to visit our website at covenantpresbyterian.ca or contact us via email at covenantcochrane at gmail.com. We pray that you are blessed by the message. Our scripture reading this week is from Matthew as we wrap up our sermon series on church discipline. We are in Matthew 18. And if I remember right, I finished off at verse 20 last time. So we will read verses 21 through the end of the chapter, verse 35. Would you please stand for God's word? And it reads, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Over the past three weeks, we've been looking at the stages of church discipline. If you will remember, the first stage to any form of discipline starts with self-discipline. Our walk with Christ and our obedience in faith starts with each and every one of us. When you become a Christian, you're usually told a couple of things that help in your new walk, and I've made fun of these before to some degree, but as a brand new Christian, they're actually not, not terrible. Um, we're told what? To read your Bibles. You should read your Bibles every day. We hear that, right? We're told to pray to God every day, and we're told to share the good news of the gospel with others. As we grow in our faith, we should study and learn more about who Jesus is, grow closer to Him in our knowledge. When we read our Bibles, we quickly realize that there are certain expectations that God has for us. We are to walk in obedience to His commandments. That's, that's obvious. We are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. We are told to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. There's only one problem with that. We're sinners. We're sinners. And as sinners, there is not and has never been a time where we've loved God as we're called to for five seconds. We've never truly loved our neighbors as we are called to do. And as we know, some neighbors are harder to love than others. But we learn that the Christian walk is one that bears spiritual fruit. But even as we grow in Christ, mistakes are made. That's why the Christian walk, the Christian life, is a life of repentance. Repentance and faith, right? 
We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Sin enters the picture. It inevitably does. Temptations come. And when those temptations come, when we, I don't know, lose our temper, when we, when we have a weak moment or do something we shouldn't have or said something we shouldn't have, we, we've lacked self-control, we've lacked self-discipline. And this is where a loving church gets to step in. The next stage is one-on-one problem solving. That's what it is. It's problem solving. This is when we see a brother or sister in sin and we lovingly come alongside that person and we show them the error that we see or experienced, uh, pointing to the Bible and articulating the issue as best we can. Uh, We're asking for repentance, repentance that leads to reconciliation, right? I've been beating this drum for three weeks. Just one more today. Repentance, which leads to reconciliation, right? In order for the unity of the body of Christ to hold, right? In order for the unity of the body of Christ to hold. Conflict and strife, bad feelings, ill will is what tears a body apart. It tears Christ's body, the church, apart. And it's interesting when you think, when you think of, of the body of Christ being the local church and what happens when we don't act in these ways and the body splits. When we think about it as a splitting of the body of Christ, it, it should ring something in us that just abhors it, right? This is not something that is good. It's not something that is right, which is why reconciliation is so often desperately needed. We are to stand out from the world. Christ says himself in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Everyone will know you're my disciples. That's how important this is. Love we have for one another shows a lost and dying world the love we have for one another shows Christ, right? If you have love for one another. What message are we telling the world when we won't be reconciled to our brothers and sisters in Christ? What are we telling a lost and dying world when we allow sin to infest the body? What are we telling a lost and dying world when we turn away from those that are brothers and sisters in sin, not allowing for the healing and the unity of the body to manifest and show a real love and a real concern for one another? Isn't that rightly where they can look at us and call us hypocrites? Right? In this one-on-one stage, most issues should be resolved. And I've beat this drum. Are we being humble? Are we being humble? Are we being loving? Are we truly wanting what is best for each other? You see, if there is no trust between us, no real relationship, this stage usually turns into something bigger, something bitter, something prideful, something completely unnecessary, something that leads to the tearing apart of Christ's body. The next stage is to bring witnesses, a person or two not involved in the issue to act as a mediator between the two parties, right? Both parties are presented with an opportunity to speak the truth, to give their side of the story, to engage in explanation, to give their case. The mediator or mediators then decide if there is merit to the case and they're invited to make a decision. They determine from the facts given if the person is in sin or not. If they are in sin, they of course uh, are exhorted to repent and to be reconciled to their brother. If they are not in sin, they are exhorted to let the matter go and still be reconciled with their brother who was in error bringing, bringing a case against them, right? We're still looking for reconciliation. This still requires love. 
It still requires patience. It still requires kindness. It still requires goodwill toward one another. If the brother is in sin and still refuses to listen, then it moves to the, uh, what we call the formal discipline process, which involves the church. And the last stage is split into two parts. The first part is involving the church elders who exhort the person to come to repentance, right? If they still refuse, then the church body is made aware in order for the members of the church to exhort them to repentance. The problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Not the problem, but the, but the situation, right? Involves more and more people, right? This is where... Uh, This stage is where communion may be withheld, fellowship may be withheld, the church body wants reconciliation to occur, so every effort to engage them to repentance is made, everybody gets involved, everybody calls them to repentance, everybody wants reconciliation. If they still do not listen, their membership with the church is dissolved and they are treated as an unbeliever. Now, there's one important thing that I didn't bring up last week, and I thought I would just include it this week. We're Presbyterians, aren't we? What does that mean? Well, as Presbyterians, there's one more step, if required. Sometimes things inside a church can be messy. We've all seen that, right? And the problem is, is sometimes it's so messy that even the pastors of the church maybe not seeing the issues as clearly as required. If a person or a family has been found in sin all the way through to excommunication, they have the option or opportunity to ask for the presbytery to get involved. Right? Or even as pastors, if we go off the rails, if if Kevin and I and maybe a future elder start going off the rails and the congregation notices and calls us to repentance and we go, nope, we're on the right track. You are the one that's in the wrong. This is where a Presbyterian system is one step better, as far as I'm concerned, better than the independent Baptist sort of model. And that is you have an option and you can go to the Presbytery and get the Presbytery involved, right? The Presbytery, upon request by the church, will step in to adjudicate the issue. This is sort of what, uh, what some might call the last chance Texaco, your last gas station before you're in the desert, right? The presbytery's findings are final. They are final. And if the church moves, so if, if the presbytery uh, disagrees with the church's findings and the church insists on being right, then what happens next is the, pre- the presbytery gets involved and goes, either need to fire your your pastors or your church is out of the presbytery, right? It's a pretty serious step. We could find ourselves without a presbytery, but there is that final step. And this finally brings us to the topic of forgiveness. It brings us to the topic of forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of those concepts that has been confused or has confused the church for a number of years. And when doing research and homework into this uh, topic, um, uh, in this issue as it relates to the church and to one another, there, there does appear to be mixed messages. Um, I have listened to sermons where very knowledgeable and capable men have declared that it is the duty of a Christian to forgive all unconditionally. These are respected guys I listen to and that's where they land, and I'm going to get more into that later. And there have been others that declare forgiveness is only given to those that repent, like God forgave you and I once we repented. So there's really two sides of the issue that I will be going through. These are obviously polar opposite views. Both views appear to be biblical. Do we have a contradiction? And the answer is no. No, we don't have a contradiction. What we do have is different applications. What we do have are different circumstances surrounding the overall concept of forgiveness. So it's our duty to try to get those things as straight in our heads as we can. Let's begin by looking at our text this morning, this afternoon actually. In verses 21 and 22, there's just a few things I'm going to hit on as we go through. 
the apostles say, should we forgive seven times? The rabbis taught that you only have to forgive somebody up to three times. That's what the rabbis of the time taught. Pulling verses from the prophet Amos where God forgave Israel's enemies up to three times. Peter here thought he was being very, very generous when he said, do we forgive seven times? Seems like a good number, right? Thought he was being really gracious. And the answer is interesting. Jesus gives Peter the answer of, well, it depends on, on which one you look at. This one said 77 times. Other, others have it 70 times 7. As I heard one preacher say, Jesus was not giving Peter a math problem, right? Jesus here is essentially saying, as often as required, as often as required, you will forgive your brother or sister. You don't have a number like 490 and then you count down every time you forgive someone for something. You're not walking around with a notebook saying, yes, my dear, you better watch yourself because you're down to 110. Like, just letting you know, look at my book, you're down to 110, right? We're not, that's not what we're doing. And it makes sense when you look at forgiveness from God's perspective. For those that have come to faith, your sins, my sins, past present and future are all forgiven. All of them. Your sins are as far away as the east is from the west. God remembers them no more. God isn't up in heaven with a tally chart, right? And neither should we. And in verses 23 through 27, Jesus then compares the kingdom of heaven with that of a debt situation, which we read, right? And the first situation was somebody who owed 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. This is an incomprehensible amount of money, right? It, when we think of it, we shouldn't think of it like $10,000 that you can pay back. Not the same thing. In this context... 10,000 talents is an incomprehensible amount of money. The point was, is that this is being compared to the sin debt that we owe God. That's Jesus' point. You owe more than you can ever pay back, ever. We could never pay what we owe with regards to our judicial standing before God which is why eternal hell is real and why Jesus dying on the cross for that incomprehensible amount of debt we owe God so, so wonderful. And it says, since he did not have the means to pay, of course he didn't. 10,000 talents was not doable. No sinner has the means to repay None can pay the debt owed to God for our law-breaking and our rebellion against Him. And it was said, all that he had was to be sold. See, everything he had still wouldn't have covered the debt. Sell him, sell his wife, sell his kids, sell all his stuff, and he is still far, far, far short of what is owed. It's impossible. Everything you have on the last day will amount to nothing. Everything we have belongs to God. Everything. We understand the expression, of course, you can't take it with you. We've all heard this. Can't take it with you. But we do understand that what we have isn't ours to begin with. Do we understand that? It's not ours anyway. In the end, when you die, all your stuff is given or sold off to somebody else. Amy and I were finally grown-ups and went and did, a, did a, a will. That was weird, a little morbid, but it's responsible, right? And as we're sitting there going, percentage to this person, percentage to this person, give this person this, you realize it kind of hits you, right, I'm going to be in a box. I might have a suit on. That's it. That's it. The rest, somebody else's problem. It's not going to belong to me. The issue is it's not mine. I've been given it, but it's not mine. 
You and I have nothing to offer God to repay the debt we owe. And whatever you do will be sold off and it'll be gone and we'll still stand before God to give an account. And what do we have to give him? Nothing. Right? And in the story that Jesus tells, the slave fell to the ground. Have patience with me, he cries. Have patience. Even though he offers to pay it all back, as we already know, he cannot. And the person he owes knows that he can't pay it. He's not fooling anybody by saying and crying out, I will repay. No, you won't. No, you won't. You can't. But he begs for patience and he throws himself upon the mercy of the person that he owes. This is the sinner who cannot begin to pay what he owes. Throwing himself to the mercy and forgiveness of the Father whom he can never begin to pay back. And what was the answer? What a glorious answer it was. He had compassion. He had compassion. And what did he do? He released him from the debt. It's incredible. He owed an impossible amount of money and yet upon upon throwing himself at the mercy of that person, he had compassion and he released him. God has compassion on those that repent. Those that understand the debt they owe and the peril that they are in and that they need God's compassion and mercy. God lifts up those that are humble. He forgives those who cannot possibly pay because he has made his son to pay upon the cross. Verses 28 to 31. And this is the contrast. This is the important part. This is Jesus' point. But that slave went out and found another slave that owed him. In contrast to the wonderful mercy and forgiveness that was shown him, this slave goes out and demands payment. Not just demands, but he's violent about it. Grabs him by the neck and he's choking him. You owe me. Well, how much did he owe? A hundred denarii. It's about three months' wages. You owe me three months' wages. And, of course, the familiar part of it is that that slave says to the other slave the exact same line. Have patience with me and I will repay you. The interesting thing is in the first one, it was an amount that could never be repaid. It couldn't be paid. It was impossible. And yet this slave says, have patience with me and I will repay. It's only three months salary. Many of us have mortgages that are far beyond three months salary. Right? We could pay that back. It's a realistic thing to pay back. Just have patience with me. I'll pay you. The same line was used by this slave as he used to get mercy. Yet instead of, of showing compassion, instead of showing grace, he does the opposite. He gives him justice. This slave, the one that's demanding payment, did nothing wrong. This was the frustrating part. He did nothing wrong. He was owed a significant amount of money. And according to the law, if you cannot repay what you owe, you go to jail. This slave couldn't pay back the debt right then and there when, when the, the money was called upon, so he was sent to prison. So what's the issue? The other slaves were deeply grieved. After seeing or hearing about the mercy this slave was shown, and then in turn seeing how this slave that was shown mercy, this slave that was shown an incredible amount of grace, turned around and treated another who owed far, far less than he owed and was forgiven of, they had an outrage, a righteous outrage. 
This was not fair. This is not just. How do you, being forgiven what you've been forgiven, then go and turn and in turn treat somebody else in a far lesser position than you worse? Where's your understanding? Where is the justice? How can one who was forgiven so much in turn not forgive another who owed so little? Verses 32 to 35. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave? So this was the one who forgave all the debt, the major debt. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? This is the crux of the matter. God has forgiven our debt that we could never pay ourselves. Therefore, we should be quick. We should be very quick to forgive others who owe us. This is what is meant by the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God has graciously forgiven us and we grieved God with our sin far, far, far more than what anyone has ever done to us. And it doesn't matter what has been done to you. No matter how grievous you think it is. And it is grievous. I don't want to downplay anyone's situation in which someone has grievously sinned against you. But in comparison, our sin against a holy and just God is far greater. So for us to withhold forgiveness is a grievous sin. How serious is it? Jesus tells us, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. We cannot possibly understand the love of God and his gracious mercy. We can't understand those things if we cannot forgive others. There is something broken in us if we think that we are somehow deserving of God's grace We are deserving of God's mercy and then we in turn can treat others uh, in, in a deplorable way and not forgive them. To not forgive, to hold on to grudges and pain and bitterness is to forget and dismiss the mercy and grace shown to us. If we demand our pound of flesh from others, the same measure will be used against us. We can't forget that. We cannot forget that. One of the difficulties when studying this entire topic is how we define our terms. And I realize that defining our terms now is a little anachronistic, but, but I think we can pull it off here if you're patient with me. The first term we really need to nail down is repentance. Over and over again, we've used that term for the person who is in sin. We keep saying we're looking for repentance. We're looking for repentance. We're looking for repentance. And repentance is literally a changing of the mind. Metanoia. A changing of the mind. I'll start with what repentance is not. Okay? And this is important. Repentance is not saying you're sorry. So I want you to really grasp what I'm laying down here. Okay? Repentance is not saying you're sorry. To say you're sorry is to express a feeling right? Nowhere in the Bible, when it comes to repentance, does it express that we are to express our sorrow as a means of repentance. When we truly repent before God, we have a godly sorrow. It is a true sorrow. But no one can read the heart. That's the issue. God knows when you've truly repented because God can read your heart, right? A godly sorrow before God is something that God can see. But when we are repenting to one another, I cannot read your heart. You cannot read my heart. You cannot read one another's heart. This is important. Should we grieve our sin? I think the obvious answer is of course we should. Absolutely. Should it bring us to our knees in sorrow? Again, yes. So what am I talking about? Have you ever had someone apologize? 
But in the end, you left feeling they didn't mean it. And it's okay if you have. I'm sure we all have. Someone is, I'm sorry. But you're like, really? Are you really sorry? There was no outward evidence of being sorry. When we say we're sorry, we're expressing a feeling. And if our outward appearance doesn't match what we say we're feeling, there is a disconnect that can and often will take away from the apology. How often have you heard someone say, and I see this all the time on, on, uh, when people are, are apologizing publicly, how many people go, I oh, didn't mean it. You could tell. I didn't see any sorrow there, right? What we're trying to do is we're trying to read the heart, Right? And so we take away. They didn't mean it, so therefore I'm not forgiving them. I don't accept your apology is what happens. I don't accept it because I don't see for myself the evidence of the sorrow that you are proclaiming. How do we normally handle conflict? We normally handle conflict by one person saying sorry, and the other one says, that's okay. Right? This is not the biblical example of discipline. It is not the biblical example of repentance. What does it mean when the other person says, that's okay? What's okay? Sin? Sin is okay? Are we okay? What just happened? The biblical manner in which we are to handle conflict is repentance and forgiveness. Repentance is when we declare to the ones we hurt that we fully acknowledge our actions. We name the sin. I lied. I whatever. Right? You name the sin. And then, more importantly, if you want to know if there's true repentance, are they taking responsibility for their actions? I stole from you, but I'm not giving you your money back. Is that repentance? Not according to the Bible. According to the Bible, if you stole, you are to give back up to four times what you stole. If you have no interest in paying it back, then you're just upset you got caught. Right? So there is a full acknowledgement of actions and secondarily you are taking responsibility for them. It is a declaration of sin and debt to the other person. We can express our sorrow, but that's not the same thing as declaring our sin before that person we've sinned against. The proper way to repent is to name the sin, to own it. I did this, which goes against what the Bible said. I should have done this. I will repay. I will do whatever it takes to make this situation right. And most importantly, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? That's repentance. And this leads to our second term, that of forgiveness. J. Adams lists three parts of forgiveness. Forgiveness means that like God who remembers our sin no more, we likewise drop the matter. We likewise drop the matter. We do not bring it up to them again. We don't bring it up to others and we don't stew on it ourselves. We don't go, yes, I forgive you. Right? We don't do what Garth Brooks sings about. Burying the hatchet, but leave the handle sticking out. Right? That is not true forgiveness. If you, if you think you've forgiven someone, but the next time that person makes you upset again, and you bring up old wounds, so this probably is a more of a marital thing, right? This happens in marriage often. I forgive you, yes, until the next time that he forgets to put his socks away. Right? And then you remind him or her that your socks were out just like they were last time. That's a reminder of you've buried the hatchet, but you left the handle sticking out, right? You're going to wield that thing again and club them. 
You're demonstrating that true forgiveness has not taken place. Forgiveness also means that you don't bring up past hurts with others. You don't talk about them in men's and ladies groups. I'm thankful to say that I haven't heard anything at Scotch and Cigar Nights with the guys. Good job, guys. Not complaining. In fact, the guys are great. They say nothing but nice things about your wives. Hey, well done, men. Right? But we don't bring these matters up in a way in which, yes, I've forgiven my wife or I've forgiven my husband, except I'm going to go spread it around the church. That's not forgiveness. If the matter, if forgiveness has been given, the matter is finished. If forgiveness has been given, it is resolved. It's done. Okay? Bury the hatchet, but bury the whole hatchet. Finally, it means that we're not bringing it up over and over and over again in our own minds. We're not stewing on it. Forgiveness means that the slate is wiped clean. The slate is wiped clean. There is nothing to stew over. And to be honest, I don't know about you, but for me, this is the hardest part. This is the hardest one to do, but it's vital if we are to truly forgive. It's vital. What we think leads to how we act and treat one another, right? Let me say that again. How we think leads to how we act towards one another. To say with your mouth, I forgive you, yet be seething inside is to betray your own words of forgiveness. It's like someone saying sorry when they don't have any sorrow at all. It just rings hollow. It rings false. Same thing applies to forgiveness. By the way, forgiveness is not thinking that sin will never happen again. You can't go there. Don't go there in your mind and say, I have forgiven this person for this sin, therefore they've learned and they'll never do that again. We're sinners. And we're going to sin. And we're going to do it again. And again. We forgive our brother and sister for a variety of things, losing their temper or whatnot. Wouldn't it be silly to think that that will that person will never lose their temper again? It'd be nice if they didn't. Jesus says, forgive 70 times 7. We're sinners, people. We're sinners. Our lives are a continuous flow of sin, repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Wash, rinse, repeat. Sin, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. Finally, the last term, reconciliation. You cannot have reconciliation without forgiveness. You cannot have reconciliation without forgiveness. To reconcile means to reestablish relations. Now, in some cases, we're talking about needing to do a complete rebuild. I've tried to think through the ramifications of sin, right? And what that means to wipe the slate clean. And sometimes we can get in our heads that 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 means everything goes back to normal. That's not what it means. It's not what it means. Sometimes there is sin so grievous that the previous relationship boundaries are no longer wise. They're no longer possible. This requires a complete teardown and rebuilding process so that the relationship in the end looks nothing like it used to. To put it in building terms, let me try to give you a couple examples. On the one hand, maybe you had a great relationship with some, somebody. You compare it to like a mansion. Things are great. It's big. It's huge. It's awesome, right? And then due to grievous sin... And forgiveness, the relation starts over. Fresh slate. But instead of the Hollywood mansion kind of relationship you had, it's now more like a country cabin with fences up and space between you and your neighbor. Right? On the other hand, conversely, you can start off with a little rickety shack sort of relationship that has all kinds of issues, and due to grievous sin, it allows your relationship to start over. You can knock down that shack, right? You can build a new foundation. You can build a new mansion. It can happen. 
In other cases, the relationship just needs some fine-tuning. In others, renovations. The point is that reconciliation means that you have a means or a basis of having a relationship of some kind where you are not outwardly or inwardly holding grudges or harboring ill will towards them. Okay, that's that basis. That's that foundation. Now, with those definitions in place, I want to get out three kinds of forgiveness in relating to different situations. Okay, I'll try to go through these quickly. We are, the first type of relationship is we are to forgive those that repent. We are to forgive those that repent. Those that are our brothers and sisters in Christ have the ability or should have the ability to truly repent. So how many times do we forgive those that are repentant? The answer is every single time. Every single time. It grieves me deeply when I hear of repentant people who are told by their fellow Christians that they need time to think about whether or not they're going to forgive. We've seen it lots where you just get people in sin and they refuse to repent. We run into that a lot. But we've actually seen it where people are truly broken, truly repentant over their sin, and yet the church still refuses to forgive them. This is who Jesus is talking to here. Who do you think you are? Your brother or sister in Christ has repented. You must forgive. You must forgive. Christian, you forgive your repentant brother or sister every time. Every time. So what do we do about those that are outside the faith? Those that sin against us who are outside the faith. This is where much confusion comes from. There are those that say as Christians, you must forgive. As I said earlier, the argument goes like this. Okay, I call it universal forgiveness. The argument goes like this. We forgive those that are outside the faith and have no ability to repent. Why? Because lost people have no concept of repentance. If they did, they would be Christians. If we wait for lost people to repent before we forgive their trespasses, our ability to converse with the lost would become rather stunted rather quickly. Right? When we show lost people the grace and forgiveness of God, we show them the love of God. When we forgive others in the same manner, we stand out from a lost world that screams for justice. Scriptures that seem to support the idea of universal forgiveness is Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15. This one has been used, although I think it's, it's easily debunked. But anyway, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. An even stronger one would be Mark chapter 11 and verse 25, which states it this way. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. That's one side of the argument. The other side of the argument says different. Forgiveness is for those who repent of their sins. True forgiveness has ramifications, as I've already discussed. I want to read a short blurb from Table Talk magazine that summed up this argument rather nicely, and it says, and I quote, Of course, the Bible often emphasizes forgiveness and mercy. We read positive examples of long-suffering and forgiveness in Joseph, with Genesis 45, and the prodigal son's father, Luke 15. We also learn that God is eager to forgive his people when they return to him. Deuteronomy 30, Psalm 130, Luke 7. Jesus even warns us that our sins are not forgiven if we refuse to pardon others. Matthew 6, as I just read. In all these cases, repentance is the prerequisite of forgiveness and reconciliation. Let me say that again. In all of these cases, repentance is the prerequisite of forgiveness and reconciliation. 
The Lord does not forgive us if we do not repent and trust in Jesus as the prerequisite for restoring the relationship is to acknowledge that we have broken it by our sin and that we are sorry for what we have done. But this is true on a human level as well. Although God tells us to be patient with the faults of others, he does not command us to forgive people who show no sign of repentance for what they have done to us and to others. We may forgive such people, but we are not required to do so. Although we must take care that the root of bitterness does not become established in our hearts when we are not reconciled to others. We get that from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. So the question is, can a Christian forgive an unrepentant sinner? Sure. No one's stopping you. I would even suggest that often it's a good thing to do. But what you do, sorry, but what do you do with those that will not stop sinning against you? What do you do with those? I had one of those in my own family. She would not stop sinning. Is it, re- is it unreasonable for the Christian to withhold forgiveness and call the sinner to repentance? Is that unreasonable? Does God forgive unrepentant sinners? In some cases, the, arg- uh, the argument could be made, but the overall message of the Bible is that reconciliation follows repentance. Reconciliation follows repentance. The Christian must always be ready to forgive. We must be ready to forgive so as to not let bitterness take root. But they are not obligated to continually forgive without repentance. And this, is, this latter position is the one that I personally hold to. Much more can be said, but we'll leave it there. The last one, the third one, is we do not forgive those that call themselves Christians and yet are under church discipline and refuse to repent. We don't forgive unrepentant Christians but we're ready to do so. Our hearts are constantly at the ready to welcome those back into the fold that repent. It's important. So what do we do with a person who is excommunicated and has renounced their faith? We've seen that, or at least I've seen that. They leave the church, they're excommunicated, and while they're at it, they say, I'm no longer a Christian, a pox on all your houses, right? What do we do? Well, we treat them as an unbeliever, and we preach the gospel to them, and we go for coffee with them if they will. Uh, we do with them what we would do with any lost person. We'd, we'd love them, we'd, we'd share the gospel with them, but we would not welcome them back into the fold as members of the church because they're not. They're not members of the church. Well, what do we do if they declare themselves Christians again? Praise God, hallelujah, right? What is the first step to being a Christian? Repent. Repent. If they repent and put their trust in Christ, part of that repentance, I'm sure, would be an acknowledgement of the sin they committed against the church previously, and they would ask for forgiveness. And the church must grant it. Must grant it. The difficulty that comes from church discipline and and forgiveness is the question of what do we do with those that are excommunicated and yet still proclaim Christ as their Savior? What do we do with those? And there are many. This is where the verses from 1 Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians come in. We are told by Paul to what? To not associate with those that are living ungodly lives. Those that call themselves Christians and are living ungodly lives. This cannot mean that we don't have anything to do with ungodly lost people in general because then we wouldn't... We wouldn't be following the example of Jesus, who did what? He ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners, right? We need to understand this in context. Who is Paul talking about here? He is talking about those in the church. He's talking about those who call themselves Christians, but do not live like it, do not act like it, are unrepentant. 
If there are those in the church that are leading ungodly lives and they continue to call themselves Christians, we must not have anything to do with them except admonishing them to repentance and faith. This is how the purity of the church is maintained and the church itself practices sanctification. So in review, if there is a brother or sister in Christ who has repented of sin, we must forgive them and be reconciled. If an unbeliever sins against us, we can forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus said this on the cross. Stephen said this as he was being stoned to death. We can forgive those that don't know the living God in order to be an example of God who forgave sinners while yet we were still his enemies. We can also withhold forgiveness as a means of driving the sinner to see the seriousness of their sin. We may not hold grudges. This is something important. We may not hold grudges. We may not allow bitterness to enter into our hearts. Finally, we do not forgive those who call themselves Christians yet are in unrepentant sin. God says, don't let bitterness take root in our hearts and this we must abide by. So how do we do this? By being ready to forgive, by wanting our wayward brothers and sisters to come to repentance If we stand ready and willing and able to forgive, what is there for bitterness to take root in? There shouldn't be any. If our deepest desire is for reconciliation, then feelings of anger and bitterness have nothing to take hold of. So, in conclusion, and I thank you for your patience today. In conclusion, the life of a Christian is one where we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and with all of our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We want what's best for us. If we want what's best for us, we should also want what is best for our neighbors. God has given us the tools and instructions to live peaceably with all. We as a body of Christ must live out the life set before us, and that is to live according to the fruits of the Spirit, to love our enemies, to exhort one another to repentance and to good works. Church discipline helps us do this. And we as a church must follow the ways of God and not the ways of man. We must not let sin corrupt the body. We must discipline ourselves. We must discipline one another, encouraging one another unto godliness for his name's sake. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of forgiveness. We thank you for the message of forgiveness. And Lord, we, we so desperately don't want to be like the world that holds grudges. We don't want to be those that, that uh, somehow seem happy in disunity. Lord, help us to have understanding minds and hearts that we would love one another in unity, that we would be quick to forgive one another, that we would be humble enough to recognize our sin our sins against one another and that we would be quick to repent of those sins and we would be just as quick to forgive. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.